Welcome to the OmniWin Project podcast, where we are accelerating the co-creation of the future of our democracy. My name is Duncan Autry, and I am a conflict transformation catalyst. I'm the creator of the OmniWin Project, and I'm your host. The goal of this project is to facilitate the healing and evolution of our democratic systems and our political culture so that together we can co-create a future that works for everyone. What that means is that if you're tired of our polarized and divisive political culture, or if you're worried about the impact of today's decisions on future generations, well then you're in the right place. I believe that the world is ready for change, and I know that we have answers to most of the problems that we're facing. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing them with you. I'm in this for the long haul, and I hope that you'll join me. So come on over to the OmniWinProject.com where you can get more information, media, resources, and inspiration. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the OmniWin Project podcast. Welcome to the OmniWin Project. The guest on today's show is Mickey Cashton. Mickey is a practical visionary who's pursuing a world that works for all of us based on the principles of feminist nonviolence. Mickey is a globally known consultant and world-renowned teacher of nonviolent communication, convergent facilitation, and the philosophy of nonviolence. She is a founding member of the Nonviolent Global Liberation Community. She's also the author of The Highest Common Denominator and Reweaving Our Human Fabric. Mickey also writes on a blog, which you can find at thefearlessheart.org. And while you're there, check out the library of amazing learning packets that Mickey has assembled and that you can download right now. I invited Mickey onto the show today because not only does she know what she's talking about regarding topics that are important to the OmniWin project, but she's also living her principles in her day-to-day life because she recognizes that she is co-creating the future right now. In this conversation, we talk about the essential nature of nonviolence and nonviolent communication and how they inform Mickey's vision for the future. We also talk about the important shifts that we'll need to make as a culture and as a society in order to create a world that works for all of us. And we talk about the changes and actions that you and I can take right now as individuals to start creating change in the world and in our own lives. Thank you so much for listening to The OmniWin Project. This episode is recorded in June of 2022. Now, please enjoy my conversation with Mickey Cashton. Mickey, welcome to the OmniWin Project podcast. It's really cool to talk to you. Um, uh, thank you for being here. My great pleasure. I'm uh, really looking forward to this conversation, given the plethora of subjects that you brought forth as an idea for us to connect about. Probably more than fits in the time that we have, but we'll do our best. Yeah, we'll, that's, we'll work with that. And uh, thank you for being willing to jump in and explore all of this. You know, it's interesting. You were on my early shortlist of people to have as a guest on this podcast because I had been um, reading The Highest Common Denominator and talking about convergent facilitation and I just any facilitation process that can take a bunch of diverse perspectives and bring them together. And I just loved how practical and useful that was. So we talked about talking about this, but convergent facilitation now is a whole 
group and there's a bunch of people out there doing that. And so we're going to make sure I talk to those folks later. What we get to talk about is, I think, like another level up of how do we take all of these amazing things that we know from nonviolent communication and nonviolence and work as facilitation and facilitators and having capacity to have consensus building opportunities. How can we take this and apply it to our world? Um, but before that, let's just start with, can tell us a little bit about the world of nonviolent communication and nonviolence. And instead of just giving us like the very basic primer, which um, we'll make sure that I'll make sure is accessible. I'm curious, like, what are some of the misunderstandings or what are the things that you think that are really important about these fields of work that that you wish people knew about more? So I want to start with nonviolence and then go to nonviolent communication from there, because nonviolent communication is an aspect of nonviolence in the way that I see it. And if we understand the larger field, it's easier to understand the smaller field within it. And I want to say that nonviolence isn't simply peace, because um, as I understand human evolution, and despite what people like Steven Pinker tell us, I belong to a small minority of people and scholars and thinkers who, when we look at the information that is available, reach a very different conclusion which is that for 97% of our existence as a species on this planet, we lived peacefully. Peacefully with ourselves, peacefully within our communities, peacefully with the larger web of life. We saw ourselves as part of that. We lived within a sense of trust. We lived within what I think of as flow, togetherness, and choice. So I often think of it in terms of life emerges from flow, functions in togetherness, and results in choice. And being peaceful within that environment doesn't count as nonviolence, even though nonviolence is ultimately about living peacefully within all of life, because it's living peacefully within a world that is already committed to living peacefully. The, the modern field of nonviolence was born in response to empire. And the first active instance of that is Jesus that we are aware of. There probably were others that didn't go down in history. Jesus is an example of nonviolence because it is nonviolence, it is committing to nonviolence in the face of violence. So in the absence of knowing that, people aren't generally thinking, oh, I'm committed to violence. They're committed to Christianity, uh, to what is right and what is wrong, to reason, whatever it is, they come committed to one of the threads within Western civilization usually is what it has been, but it isn't about Western civilization. I can see, I'm trying to imagine what it's like when people come and you believe that all people, even if they're strange, they look different, they act different, 
you believe that ultimately they will join with you in the idea of how to work it out, that there's enough for everyone. You know, you want to share with them. They had hardships on the way. You're going to try to support them, but then they come and decimate you. And if you don't have um, an understanding of the actual modern tools of nonviolence, you're not going to be able to resist. And the result is, I, I think it's hard for people to grasp that within years, and decades in some parts of what is now the Americas, 90 to 100% of populations were completely destroyed. Think about it, 90 to 100% of population is not like a few, it's systematic. And there was no, almost no capacity to resist for any number of reasons. And in my perspective, some of it is not being, not having a context from within which to understand control, right, wrong thinking, imposition, power, domination, patriarchal control, all of these things were entirely foreign to the people who were conquered. So when I talk about nonviolence, I talk about it specifically in the context of living in a world of separation. So let me see, because I think I'm understanding the essence of what you're saying is that nonviolence as a tool, as a methodology, especially the modern form, can be very effective, but it's effective in the face of conquest. So I think that part of what you were saying is that of the people in the Americas where there was this massive genocide and entire civilizations and populations wiped out, part of what was happening is they were living in, let's say, peace, but not nonviolence, and therefore were able to just kind of get steamrolled by this conquest. Is that where that distinction of nonviolence being not being the same as peace comes in? I think be, at least the way that I see it or what I'm trying to bring across is that nonviolence in a nonviolent world is very different from nonviolence as a response to violence. That makes a lot of sense. That clarifies a lot because, right, nonviolence works under the pressure of oppression. That's when it's the most effective yeah. and it's quite effective. <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't have to be specifically conquest. You know, one of this, a, a very small action that is not very well known by people. There, You know, everybody knows Gandhi, everybody knows the civil rights movement. But not that many people know about 2,000 women who staged the nonviolent protest in front of the Gestapo headquarters in Berlin. 2,000 women whose husbands or sons, or I don't really, mostly husbands, but not only husbands, were Jewish and had been kind of like their departure had been staved off by virtue of being related to German women. But there came the day when these men were picked up. And these women staged a nonviolent protest in front of the Gestapo headquarters, and it worked. The 2,000 men were, were released. Wow. Part of why this is 
powerful to have you know missed this is you know right because we have like these famous nonviolence ones, but you, it seems like oh well in the face of Nazis you know nonviolence wouldn't work, and yet we have it even working in this context. Like for you, what how do you understand why nonviolence is so effective and? By the way, I will make sure to add some different links here that can help people learn about Erica Chenoweth's work, about nonviolence and so forth. But for you, what is some of the essence of why, how is it that that works? Why, why is nonviolence an effective tool? So the, the three pillars of nonviolence, as I understand them, are courage, truth, and love. And at, the, at its deepest essence, it's integrating those at the level of thought, word and action and you know one of the things that gandhi said and i i'm not it's going to be not exactly his words because they're not immediately available to me right now but basically he says if somebody cheats you 20 times you're going to trust them the 21st time because part of the creed of nonviolence is trust in human nature and this is key. It's key because essentially when you are functioning at, at the deepest level of nonviolence, you are appealing to the other person's humanity. Right. Yeah. You, 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 you're not going to be able to force them. You are going to make it impossible for them to continue the, to act in the ways that they're acting in large part in relation to their values, not in relation to your values. So I, I sometimes have used the term, you know, pushing the powerful into a moral corner. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And it takes a huge amount of courage, but courage alone is not enough. Because you you can do courage while dehumanizing others. Every soldier who has ever fought in every soldier has ever fought in any war, it requires a, a huge amount of courage. Right. But it it doesn't have truth or love in it. Right. And I could also imagine that various forms of nonviolent protest that we see today quote unquote, nonviolent protest, people will bring the courage and maybe even bring some truth. But without bringing the love, that ability to convert the other person is hard to come through. Yeah. yeah. And that that love, its root is in the pre patriarchal times of alignment with life. It's like you are kin, no matter what you did, no matter how much harm you have contributed to even to me, you remain kin. That's very deep. And you know, some people make a distinction between strategic and principled nonviolence. I don't, because I think principled nonviolence is more strategic, because its power comes from the moral dimension. Sure, if you don't, if you don't mobilize the masses, it won't happen. But the moral dimension is also part of why you're able to mobilize the masses. In regular mainstream ways of attending to conflict or challenge or whatever, you try diplomacy. 
or negotiation. If it doesn't work, you escalate to war. In non-violence, in non there is a parallel escalation. You try dialogue. And if dialogue doesn't work, you escalate to nonviolent resistance. They're very parallel to each other. And dialogue, the whole field of dialogue was not developed by either Gandhi or Martin Luther King to any significant degree. And Marshall Rosenberg emerged from multiple fields, one of which was his own investigation of nonviolence. And his focus has been primarily in the area of dialogue. That is where nonviolent communication. Well, okay, so I hear this parallel on some standard traditional warfare, you know, we'll have negotiation and diplomacy, when that falls apart, then the means is war. And so the parallel that you're making is that we start with nonviolent communication, dialogue, you know, interest-based, need-based communication. And if that's not able to work, then nonviolent resistance is where we can escalate to. And that's, so we can still hold the like need to take care of everyone's needs, take care of my needs, take care of your needs. And then, because I think that this is something that I've, I've struggled with sometimes about the means and the ends, right? It's like, if you want to go and resist someone or protest or, or fight against something, that can make sense. But if you do that and you lose track that your end goal is to actually be back in relationship and trying to actually figure out how to work it out with this person, if you've, you know, if they've become such an enemy that you don't ever want to talk to them again, then you miss the, the opportunity that's there. I do just want to say for those who are not familiar, Marshall Rosenberg was the creator of nonviolent communication, the author of the book, Nonviolent Communication and started like quite a movement around that. Now you have been the head of nonviolent NVC Bay Area. You probably taught lots of people about nonviolent communication. And I always find it interesting when I meet someone who's like, I'm going to go learn about NVC. And I always kind of go, oh, shoot, there's a caveat that I want to give them about, you know, about the ways that it can be taught often. So I'm curious, like when you're teaching nonviolent communication, like what are you really trying to get people to know about this? Like what, what are some of the things that, that you think people miss or that might be worthwhile to know about? I think that there are two, at least two basic ways that things worry me sometimes. One is there, there's a set of practice tools that Marshall Rosenberg created, you know, where you, you literally learn to practice how to shift from interpretation to observation, how to shift from thoughts to actual feelings, how to shift from talking about what should happen and all of these things to talking about what you really need and how to shift from demanding what, what people should do to making a request where you're open to releasing the outcome. All of these things are practice tools to help you train your consciousness so that your authentic speech will realign itself with the deeper principles of nonviolence, of dialogue, of connection, of all of this. When people get into the practice tools being the thing, that is when I get worried about it, that people are learning something 
that is going to become a new right way to do something. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a but wonderful distillation of what I've observed. Yes. There's a second one that worries me, which is that the purpose of the whole thing is to realign us with life. And individually and collectively as a species to realign us with life, because if we don't realign with life, we are going to we are on our way to extinction. So what does it mean if you may remember that I said earlier life emerges from flow functions in togetherness and results in choice and what we have done with the patriarchal turn is this that patriarchy emerges from scarcity so we moved from flow to scarcity functions in separation so we move from togetherness to separation and results in powerlessness so we move from choice to powerlessness so if we want to realign with life, we need to walk in the opposite direction, restore choice from powerlessness, restore togetherness from separation, and restore flow from scarcity. And these are three distinct shifts. There are many others that emerge from them, but these are three huge and distinct shifts. And a lot of the way that some people teach NBC remains mostly at the level of restoring choice for individuals. So it's a kind of like becomes a, a kind of commercial personal growth where you learn to connect with your needs and now you can have a better life. And if you go further, then you learn how to hear another person and maybe you can be in dialogue. There isn't a deep engagement with what does it actually mean to restore togetherness how does choice shift when we exercise choice within togetherness rather than choice as a form of separation and what happens when you try when we try to restore flow where we can't just talk we need to attend to the material plane of how do we care for needs on the material plane how do we move resources from where they exist to where the needs are. How do we sustain all life? How do we change our relationship with the non-human life? All of these things require deeper and deeper study and application of the principles of nonviolent communication well beyond the individual. It requires bringing in a systemic lens, understanding what has happened to us systemically so that we can orient systemically to creating new systems that are based on needs. So for example, a decision-making system is, is a shift from either or to integration. All of our current decision-making systems are based on either or. And so integration is a key process because integration takes what, what you are saying, your perspectives, your needs, all of that, what I'm saying, my perspective, my needs, my concerns, all of that, and integrates a new whole from that. It's not give up something and I give up something, which is what compromises. It's together we create something new that integrates what comes from both of us into a larger whole. This is what convergent facilitation does so beautifully, where it can do it 
on a on a significant size group level where what is important to everyone becomes the basis for a solution that will work for everyone then if you look at resource flow you need to shift from incentive to willingness meaning instead of getting people to do things based on here if you do this we'll give you something and then there's exchange or you can accumulate or whatnot instead of that it's like what happens when we take on the principle that we only do what is within willingness and capacity everyone on the planet you get into an entirely different situation so then you run into entirely new problems like what are we going to do about the garbage i don't think there are going to be people who want to pick up the garbage people pick up the garbage because that's the only way for them to get money to be able to buy food and keep roof over their head if you do away with incentives everything needs to be reorganized in an entirely different way so that all the tasks that are necessary for living will be done based on willingness that is entirely revolutionary and the same applies to all the different systems there are deep shifts so if you want to organize information flow right now information is controlled if you shift from controlling information to full transparency so that everyone has access to all the information that's relevant to what they're trying to do. That's an, another revolution. Then if you want to organize feedback systems, this one, the shift is from performance to learning. Right now, feedback is part of the incentive system and part of the control system. It's all intertwined. But there's no learning that happened. Real feedback is about learning. How do we learn to attend to our purpose, care for our values, and care for each other better and better and better all the time through feedback loops? And lastly, what do we do with conflict? How do we engage with conflict? The mainstream ways of engaging with conflict are based on consequences. And the shift can be engaging with conflict based on capacity. If you understand conflict, as an expression of low capacity in the ecosystem. Because just think about it like this, when our capacity is high, give me a challenge, we'll work it out. Bigger and bigger problems become possible to metabolize and digest and work with. When we are low capacity, smaller and smaller problems are beyond our capacity and result in mistrust and conflict and, and polarization and all of that. So for example, what is happening now in the United States, the United States is such a low capacity nation right now. It's scary. There's no capacity to deal with very, very basic things like pandemic, like how are we gonna keep children safe in schools? These things are so polarized because the level of fear and anxiety and, and stress that people are living in is so high. People are so outside of connection with life that they don't have the capacity to find the pathways of integration, of willingness, of learning, of transparency, of trust, capacity, all of that. So this 
is where I take NBC to a systemic level. All of it is about establishing needs-based systems, but establishing needs-based systems is different depending on what the issue is. What would it mean to create transportation that it's based on needs? It's not going to be everybody has their own car. Okay. Wow. This is wonderful. I, I, I love all these little shifts that you're talking about because I can tell that they've been really well thought out. But it's sort of, again, I, I hear that there's, the way I tend to think about this is, and this is actually where I, what gives me like some hope in the world is that, wow, there's just like a couple different like ways that we think about things that if we could tweak those, there would be like these cascading effects through various pieces in our, so, you know, for, for example, we're responding to conflict instead of being like, what are the consequences for this? We said, oh, wow, it looks like there's some people here having a hard time. What do they need to be able to get their needs met better? You know, like it would be a different approach. Or if we saw someone that had done something that we considered to be a violation of the rules of our society, like what would it look like to, instead of punishing them, like what would it be like to actually see them as a person who needs healing, for example. So those would just create cascading effects and be very different. Or yeah, I'll do this because I'm willing instead of I'm doing this because you're making me. And you know, those kinds of shifts. One thing that I know, and I'm hearing this because I, I haven't read some of your things and just knowing some of the ways that this whole thing works, the part that you're saying there about if we base it on people's needs, there's something essential there. And I remember it was probably even 20 years ago, the first time someone gave me a list of universal human needs. I was up in Seattle with someone at the Center for Nonviolent Communication up there. And and when I like took in this list and really understood what I was looking at, I was like, holy smokes, this is something, this is a list of everything that everyone in the world agrees on, more or less, right? You know, like, I, I can see the need for this, I can see the need for this. And, you know, to the degree that they're culturally universal, I know there's some questions there. But why would a society where we're meeting each other's needs be one that could have all these cascading effects? Could you like help us connect the dots between the, the needs and the creation of the society that we want to live in? Because I bet you can articulate it pretty well. Okay. <laughs> First of all, I want to say that for people who don't have an understanding of nonviolent communication or don't have the energy or capacity or desire to learn a whole system, I would say it's really, really, really simple and easy to think in terms of four basic needs. I will just say what those four as are because I think everybody can remember four basic needs. Physical needs, freedom, connection, meaning, just that. And if, if you think deeply, and this is where we go back again and again to how we view humans and our understanding of human nature. From where I am, no one would engage in violence if their needs were met. Why would I ever want to engage in violence if my needs are already met? So there is a really, really deep social and philosophical shift from thinking about controlling people to thinking about sustaining people as a way to have things function. Somebody who is stressed is not gonna have space for somebody else's needs. Somebody who is well-fed and relaxed will. But when we start thinking of needs 
in terms of what the market creates, the kind of unnecessary things that we all consume as a substitute for our true needs, then it's hopeless. It's when we get to the actual basics of what is it that we really need. And key is no one decides for anyone else what they need. We need to have the freedom to define our own needs, even if it means that the first drafts of sharing resources are still skewed. Because one of the things that happens is, for example, if you grew up in poverty and I grew up in wealth, your felt sense of need and my felt sense of need will be different. Because you grow up in poverty, you learn to make do. You learn it, you learn it so well that you don't feel the need for a second car. Because if you need to go to work and somebody else in your household needs to go to work, there's somebody else in the neighborhood who has a car that they're not using at that time and you will, you will use it. I mean, this is, may not be a great example, but it's, it's, you just learn to make do so you feel less need. If I grew up with 15 servants who are just standing there in different corners of the room, just waiting to see me move and then they come and give me what I didn't even articulate that I want. My felt sense of need is different because if I don't have a single servant, I will feel naked, unable to manage my life. It's not entitlement. Sure, there is entitlement, but entitlement is not how I feel inside. Inside, I feel unstable. Like I don't know what to do with myself if I don't have access to that kind of support. I don't know how to manage my life. I don't know how to interact with other people to create pathways for meeting needs. So until all of us come back to the depth of who we are as human beings, there may be iterations that are still skewed. Still, I believe, I don't want to define for you what your needs are. I can tell you, okay, so you want this much bread. There isn't enough. Because if you get this much bread, this person won't get any. What are we going to do about it? And we work it out. And this way you learn. You learn to, through feedback, you learn to consume less. So I'll give you a very concrete example. The community that I created and I now do all my work through, there are now about 300 of us. It's a virtual community. There's no place that it is. We are spread out in different parts of the world. And there are about 30 of us who depend on the community for all or part of our own sustainability of our own needs. So three times a year, money comes in. We ask for money from the people who support us. It comes in. We have however much we have, and then we distribute it amongst all the people who put in requests because they need it for sustainability. And so far, every single time we have asked for money, what we received has been less than the sum total of the requests within the community. And so far, we distributed whatever money came and we've survived. We're now doing it for several years. It's not a great...
scientific experiment, but the reality is that we have survived, which means that we have each and all somehow gradually been reducing our consumption to match the available resources. And suddenly we realized, instead of looking at it like, oh my God, we don't have enough coming in, what are we gonna do? We suddenly see the gift in it, that it is aligning us with reducing consumption, which we all know, all of us who think about it, we know we need to reduce consumption in order to be able to stay as a species on the planet. It is not sustainable, especially what is happening in the United States of America, it's not sustainable. But this is like life gave us an opportunity to organically reduce our consumption through what is happening in real life. So, yeah, I think that in your book, Reweaving Our Human Fabric, I saw a phrase of, you know, we want to find a world that honors and seeks to meet the needs of everyone. And I have had the rule of thumb that I thought of is like, if we could organize society on like, let's try to make it as good as possible for as many people as possible. Like, well, let's see what would happen. But needs is a little more effective because good is pretty subjective there. But part of what you're saying is that if we are getting clear about our needs, even though we're all coming from different experiences and we have different ranges of strategies to meet those needs, I need lots of cars, less cars, whatever. But as we do this, then in community, as we're integrating it with other people and we're figuring out I have needs and you have needs. Eventually, we're going to have to look at something that's in a, there's a hard material limit here in a way. But by recognizing needs, it seems like you're saying that we can shift out of the scarcity mindset of like, how do we control all of these things? And instead, really start recognizing with our interdependence, how the, what we need can be distributed. And I guess in order to get to there, we need processes for communication. So maybe there's a chance here to the bridge to the governance question, but there was something you were saying that like we can get a group of people together and we can actually come to some agreement and alignment about how do we deal with these issues or how do we deal with this question. So can you tell us like a little bit about what that process of us like figuring out our alignment of needs, like the decision making is not either or, but is instead kind of getting us together a little bit. The piece that I want to talk about is this thing that I call mutual influencing, because I, and I want to bring in a name of someone that I learned a huge amount from, which is Genevieve Vaughn, who has been researching what she thinks of as the maternal roots of the gift economy. And she thinks of us as a mothering species, which I love that image. And if you think about it, one of the things that are unique about humans is the length of our dependence on others. None of us would be here if there weren't people who unilaterally gave to us when we couldn't give anything back. So we are actually physiologically, biologically dependent on the gift economy. And then we reject it and move to exchange. But the capacity to orient to others' needs is it's in our DNA and in our early experience in life. We were receiving unilaterally or we wouldn't be here. 
And so that means to me that when I hear of your need, it does something to me. My heart opens to you when I hear of your need and I want to give to you. Simultaneously, when I tell you about my need, you want to give to me. When we remove the barriers of separation and scarcity that keep us from being able to work together on solving problems, our brains are designed for integration, for creativity, for innovation. We excel at solving problems that have multiple variables. That is one of the things that is unique to humans is that we have big brains that have that capacity. Then it becomes an engineering problem, not a fight problem. Yeah, and we're very good at engineering. Gosh, I there's a couple directions that I want to go here. And one, when it comes to engineering, part of me wants to like talk about the your grand proposal that you put together about how do we like scale from like local to global government and like how do we engineer a governance system where people get a voice. But then I also hear in this, you know, as you talk about like wanting to meet each other's needs, there's something about the question about how do we get people to want to get into that willingness, right? We know that there are tools out there that can work and we can collaborate across our differences and we have the ability to do that. We also can tell that a lot of people think that they want that, but we're not using these tools very much. And part of it, I think, is people's like, Mm-mm, not going to do it. And I'm not, I don't see the benefit of listening to this person or talking to this person. What does it take as an individual or, or as a process to, to, to get from incentive to willingness on this kind of thing? So first of all, I want to say that, think about it like this. If I'm one individual trying to embrace these principles, it's a mountain uphill struggle to get anywhere because everybody around me is going to be suspicious and in separation and scarcity. It requires a huge capacity on my end to do this. And most people won't have that capacity. Now imagine that there are two of us trying to do this. We are already in it. So then we have each other to, you know, lean on and the struggle to climb that mountain is not as difficult. It's still very difficult because two people can get into a conflict like nobody's business and dyads are weak structures. This is a topic of a whole other thing. So let's think three or four people. This is where I'm funding myself now. There are four of us living together, vagabonding together and trying out every last bit of the things that we're talking about here. And we also write and document what we're doing a lot so people can find out in all kinds of places. And it's much easier then, both internally, because four of us are already in agreement. And then when the fifth person comes, they're threshold to cross is much lower. Remember when we were talking about it's easier to be nonviolent in a nonviolent world than to be nonviolent in a violent world? We are creating a seed of a seed of a seed of a possibility of living differently. 
we are trying to create it in optimal conditions. And what I mean by optimal conditions is not having a Mercedes. Optimal conditions for me is trust and togetherness. And we agree to look at everything that we're doing and learn from it and look at it and learn from it and look at it and learn from it. So we are dedicating a huge amount of energy to it. But the other people who come, visitors, the larger community, they benefit from what we are learning and it's less hard for them. So there are certain things that people can do on their own. Most things are easier done within community. We are not meant to be individuals. We're meant to live in community. When there is a community and there is one person who is like, oh, wait a minute, I don't think, da, 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 then the community can surround that person with love. So for example, we have a thing within our visitor system. We have a thing that if you come to visit us for several days, we're going to do this thing that we kind of like flippantly call forced receiving. For a few days, we're not gonna let you do anything. You're not, we're not gonna let you cook. We're not gonna let you wash dishes. We're not gonna let you take the garbage out or anything so that you have an experience of unilateral receiving. And only after that are we going to include you in our way of doing things. And our way of doing things has nothing fair about it. We are striving for releasing fairness. We really operate based on willingness and capacity. So right now we have a lot of logistical challenges and there is a bit of a conflict between two of us. So overall right now we are in low capacity and the way we handle cooking right now, they're, they're, we're five now because we have a, an extended visitor and three of us are not willing to cook for the, for the time being. It's beyond our capacity and the other two are either they figure out how to cook or we do takeout. It's only happened once so far that we needed takeout. And it so happens that those two are the guys. And there's something amazing about having a situation in which for whatever reason, obviously we can't get into the details, the three women that are here now, we're not cooking. And the guys are either cooking or doing takeout. It's and it's not like we decided that the men should cook. It's that when we look at the present distribution of capacity and willingness, that is what makes sense. And it makes sense to all of us. And if it doesn't, then we talk about it and we figure it out. But fundamentally, we have amazing flow at the level of running the business of our living together because we are always seeing who's willing to do this who has capacity? And if not, what are we going to do? And we're willing to let voids happen rather than somebody over-mobilizing to do something and then have resentment. Wow. So as soon as you started talking about the being the principled and you're by yourself and then we into the two and then the three and the four, I immediately started thinking like, this is something that I've been trying to do this project, for example, like kind of by myself or has been, there's something that's not working about it. There's a way that I need people to run ideas by to ask for help. So I, anyways, I can feel this and I, and part of me is like, oh, 
That's interesting. So with this group of people, there's a way that you have not only found this values alignment and the you know, principles and so forth, but you're also there to be each other's mutual support and somehow without being all codependent with each other, I guess, basically, or, you know, somehow without, without making, so I have to do all these things that these people depend on me creating a new burden. Yeah. No, no, not at all. Yeah. It's, it's, we function very differently from the codes that are available within society and all our resources are shared. In other words, our money is shared. We make life decisions together, together, who goes to visit their, you know, family or who comes when all of this we decide together and it looks it may look to people like oh my god i don't want that that's fine you don't have to but people think it's harder and it's actually easier yeah i think something i want to snatch out of this idea here is these ideas of these principles and purpose because i'm actually interested in learning more one of the things that you're working on as a project is this idea of vision mobilization and, you know, I downloaded the packet. By the way, I'm just going to make a shout out that for anyone who's listening out there, there is an amazing library of resources of information and you can pay what you want with a gift economy. I'm going to make sure the link's here, but it's a fearless heart. Zero but, is fine. And zero is fine. And there's even a message there saying that like, actually a bunch of people were getting this for free and sharing it and using it. That would be great. And so anyways, there's a ton of resources for beginner stuff, advanced stuff. So anyways, I was reading this packet about um, of yours about mobilizing vision. And it seems to me that a lot of what it's about is about getting clear about what the purpose is and then building the principles and the practices out of that. And, totally. and this for me is what I, I hear that as a strategy for navigating complexity which is kind of like my theme right now. I'm happy to say, I'm happy to say, so here, here's the deal. One of the things that is keeping the existing system going is the, is the idea that there's no alternative, which started a long time ago, but crystallized with Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan in the eighties. It's called Tina. There is no alternative. Now you have the World Social Forum. Also forwards, another world is possible. That is the world of no alternative vision. So the first step of liberation is to have a vision of something else being possible. The second step of liberation is seeing how far from that we are and mourning the gap. Then we do what we call capacity assessment. What are my strengths? What are my limitations? What openings are available to me in my life? What obstacles are there in, if I think about moving towards the vision? And based on that, I find a purpose for myself that is precisely what is mine to do to go towards the vision. And that purpose pulls me out of my conditioning, of my all of these things and allows me gives me energy to keep moving. So then I create agreements and I can be a person, can be an organization, a community, a, a, a church, a family, <coughs> whatever it is. I create agreements that will support me in taking the action that will move me towards vision. That's 
a key process that we work with. And yes, our entire community functions in this way. And it's been really and truly amazing. Yeah. For, for those who are interested, is the guide that we can find online, is it something that we could do on our own or are there upcoming courses or chances to do this with other folks? Okay. So first of all, in terms of the vision mobilization, there's a website, there is a course that was done that is recorded. Uh, there is a community that I mentioned, it's called nonviolent global liberation, nglcommunity.org. It's not the most beautiful site on the planet, but it, there is a way to join and become a friend and participate in the activities. People can get coaching and creating their vision mobilization structure, participating in, in various and sundry courses. There's a lot and people can find all of that. And there are other things that people can do without having to get involved with this or that community or action. There are little things that people can do on their own. My favorite new one, and I'm actually slowly going to create a website for it. I call it quit the market. And, and it's for me, the equivalent of the spinning wheel that was part of Gandhi's campaign. The spinning wheel was an activity that people were invited to do for 30 minutes a day that doesn't require any particular skill or any particular commitment and simultaneously reduces dependence on large institutions. So in the case of India, if indeed enough millions of people were to do what Gandhi said, which is spin and weave your own clothes, the British textile industry would have collapsed. So it's a very small action with very radical potential. Similarly, quit the market. Every time we find a way to attend to our needs without having to exchange money, we reduce the GDP. We reduce the reliance on market. We make the markets more wobbly and we go towards the possibility of restoring the commons. The commons are about people meeting their needs, material needs, not emotional needs, material needs in relation with each other and land directly in community. So we can restore the commons. And so the idea of finding 30 minutes a day in which we look for strategies to attend to our needs that don't require us to go and buy something or sell something. So non-monetary, non-exchange, uncoupling giving from receiving, deaccumulation. Most of us who live in the global north have more than we need. Most of us, including many who are below the poverty line in the global north, not all, but many, have more than we actually need to sustain ourselves well. So if we are able to deaccumulate, that is an amazing liberation and changes material relationships. So those, all of these things are a type of type of action on the material plane. There's an entire different set of actions, which is about questioning what we have been told, what we have been told about ourselves, 
what we have been told about people, what we have been told about the systems that we live in, and what we have been told about each other. So seeing the systemic, seeing how we are made, how this the systems of patriarchy, capitalism, white supremacy, the religions, all these different things, how all these systems have shaped us through our socialization to be who we are and the same for other people. So when people do things that are not to our liking, remembering that they are the product of the same systems that we are. And these are systems that pit people against each other and against themselves and against life. When we see that it brings compassion, expansion, more possibility of seeing ways of attending to it. And once we actually see those ways, then we can start thinking about what is my sphere of influence? And my sphere of influence may be as small as my children. And then the question is, how do I relate to my children in a way that attends to their needs as they understand them, prepares them to stand up to a system by not being obedient, instills in them a sense of agency and capacity to engage with others, to learn from others, to contribute to others, even as, as young ones, then I'm leveraging my sphere of influence to create a different world. And it may be that my sphere of influence is huge and I'm a CEO and I can totally change the way that this company is run and convert it into a worker co cooperative. What my sphere of influence is, is not something I can change overnight, but how I act within it, what stories I tell myself, and from those stories, what actions I see are possible, all of us can do. So I think that is plenty, and I will leave it here from that perspective. And I will only say that, you know, it's a joy to talk with you and to talk to people and whoever the people are who are hearing. And if people are excited about what we're doing, what we're doing is really, really unusual and rare and small, and we could use all the support in the world. So there, there are many ways that people could plug in and, and get involved, it, you know, support us with work, support us financially, and support us by doing the work elsewhere. Thank you. I I just want to just really honor like the you know, your commitment to trying to spread this as widely as possible. And there's the generosity of, of that. And it's something that I think is key as part of this kind of Omni-Win movement is, you know, our current system would have us all competing with each other. So like I'm a right. conflict resolution consulting firm and it's better than this other one that doing, you know, or whatever, and then, or marketing and our just differences. But actually we really, there's so much that we can do together and learn from each other and so forth. And so for those who are interested in all these things that you just heard about, I'll make sure that I'll put all the links for all of that here with this episode. And I do want to just like lift up this, I mean, this thing about question what you've been told about all the different things. Now, that almost becomes one of those principles, you know, like, do I actually understand why this is happening? And what is at the heart of this? And why is it? And, and like, am I in alignment with it? Because we do have choice about how we get things done and, and how we interact. I was listening to another podcast with you. You're telling the story about 
going to the farmer's market and getting some mulberries and sharing it with a total stranger and how the stranger got their mind blown because you didn't want to sell it to them or anything. And I thought that was such a great example because there's something about the changes we're trying to make. Sure, we can go try to change some legislation in Washington, D.C. Good luck. It's not we're not very good at that these days. But you can right now in your next interaction with another human start creating the world you want to be. And if there's any real lesson, I think that Gandhi really, you know, like taught well is like be the change that you want to see in the world. But really about that, if you want to be in a world of love, Figure out how it's going to love people. If you're not ready for that, and I think that was something I read somewhere on something else you said. Look, if you, as if you're a facilitator and you can't handle certain people's perspectives, that's up to you to figure out how to do the role plays, do the healing, do the spiritual work, whatever it's going to take. But, you know, so if you don't feel like you're ready to step away from the market or if you don't feel like you're ready to sort of question the story or if you don't feel like you're ready to start loving your neighbor, then that's a good place to start too. Thank you. Wow. Thank you so much, Mickey. Thank you so much for listening to the OmniWin Project podcast. I am so grateful to today's guest for being on today's podcast. And if you liked what they had to say and you want to learn more about them or any of the things we discussed in the episode today, check them out in your show notes right there on your podcast app or come on down to OmniWinProject.com where you can get even more information. You can find a video version of this podcast as well as the transcript. And there are many more episodes that are going to be coming soon. So don't forget to subscribe to the podcast right now and share it with a friend while you're at it. As you go into the rest of your day, I invite you to remember that we are all co-creating our future right now. And we all have a role to play in the whole. Thank you for listening to the OmniWin Project podcast. Have a wonderful day.